Let's pray. Father, this morning we um, come to worship you and we come to grow in our understanding of your love and your grace and um, the impact and the way that that is to affect our lives. And uh, many of us are distracted, uh, but I pray that as we Uh, dive into your word that your promise that it would not return void would remain true and that you would help us to um, be able to focus on you and uh, what you have to say to us through your word this morning and to uh, see how it may even impact the things that are going on around us uh, today and uh, as we move forward. We thank you for your love and your son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We began, uh, we come to the end of Colossians today, and we began this study through Colossians by explaining that holiness is greater than happiness. Uh, I put it in this little mathematic formula that holiness is greater than happiness. We often elevate happiness to the highest extreme and therefore we choose things that dishonor God because we justify it because that's what makes us happy. And so the goal and I think the overarching message of Colossians most simply summarized is that holiness is greater than happiness and holiness is the greatest pursuit that we can dedicate our lives to because... To pursue holiness is to pursue Christ, which is to pursue God and glorify God with everything that we are. A little bit longer explanation of Colossians in a nutshell is this. God has, in Christ, reconciled himself to the world he created through Christ and now invites his people to enjoy that reconciliation, to grow up into the full and rich human life of the new age And so enjoy him. By beholding Christ, the image of God, they they are to be changed into his likeness. God has in Christ reconciled himself, reconciled to himself the world he created through Christ. Remember that. That's the beginning of Colossians. And now he invites his people to enjoy that reconciliation, to grow up into the full and rich human life of the new age, Colossians 3, and so enjoy him. By beholding Christ, the image of God, they are to be changed into his likeness. Colossians 3.10, that last sentence really summarizes Colossians 3.10. And so this summary of the book of Colossians brings us to the last section of Colossians in chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. And often, if we're honest, this section seems irrelevant to us. In fact, I would, I would, I would guess that often when we're reading through Colossians, when we get to this section, our minds disengage. We finish reading it so we can say that we did our reading But mentally, we kind of unplug because we know that there's not really anything important. This is just a list of people that Paul throws out there with their names, and there's not really a whole lot to teach on in this section. But N.T. Wright points out that 
One of the things that this section does is that it reminds us that this book, this letter to this church, isn't merely a theological textbook. Paul didn't just write Colossians so that we could have a textbook theology of the nature of Christ and the work of Christ and what that means in our lives. This section reminds us that Colossians is a real letter to real people. Which I think could be a sermon in itself on why it matters. If it was important enough for Paul to write this real letter to real people, then it's important enough for us to understand. Even those things that we think don't really matter, like what we believe and those different understandings of Christ. Um, Harold Phillips says that some of the key qualities of Christians at work together are indicated in this text. Because if you look at the back of your bulletin today, what we are looking at, we're looking at this text, but we want to look at what it means to have Jesus-centered, Christ-centered friendships. Because that's what I think we see a picture of here And Harold Phillips says that some of the key qualities of Christians that work together are indicated in this section, such as confidence in fellow workers and concerns for another's welfare and prayer support and zeal for the cause and interdependence, that need for one another. And I share that now because I want you to notice those themes as we read through these few verses. Confidence in your fellow workers for Christ which as a reminder, Peter says, we are a royal priesthood. If you are a Christian, you are part of the priestly fellowship of ministering people. And and Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are all co-laborers with God for the kingdom. And so confidence in your fellow workers, confidence or concern for each other's welfare. Prayer support Zeal for the cause of the gospel and interdependence, knowing that we depend on one another. And so as we read, it's page 985 in the Pew Bibles, if you didn't get that, because I I forgot to mention it. But as we read, look for those themes of Christian friendships, Jesus-centered friendships. Colossians 4, 7 through 18 Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And remember that we is Timothy. In the first chapter we read that Paul and Timothy are writing this. That you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort for me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. 
Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have also read to the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Before we unpack this idea of Christian friends, there's a couple things I want to note that are significant. Uh, One of them would be Nympha and the church in her house. This is one of those things you may see a footnote because some of them translate this differently and there is strong debate over if this is Nympha or Nymphus. Nymphus would be a masculine name and in the, the Greek, each, each word had a gender. And so you could, most words could be either neutral gender or masculine gender or feminine gender. And you always use the masculine gender for men, and you always use the feminine gender for women. And so the best explanation I can think of where there is, for English, would be the name Aaron. E-R-I-N is almost always assumed to be a female Aaron. A-A-R-O-N is almost always assumed to be a man. Or are there two R's? I don't know. Just one? Okay. okay. And so there are a lot of names that are intergender, and those would be neutral names. But that would be an example of one that is very clear. A-A is a masculine name, and E-R is a feminine name. There's a lot of debate over whether this is a masculine name or a feminine name, and there's some really harsh debate because when you start looking at the manuscripts, it's hard to tell. The problem is because certain traditions have struggled with the idea of women having any kind of role in leadership in the church. Some translations have changed these to make them masculine names to not have to deal with that. In fact, at the, in the end of Romans, there's a name, in some translations it's Junius, in others it's Junia, and it's the same issue. So just to be aware of that, You'll probably never find anything that will help you come to a clear conclusion unless you're determined to have a certain conclusion that you come to because there are equal arguments for all of them. The other, the other issue that I want to point out is in verse 16. Paul mentions the letter to the Laodiceans. It actually says the letter from Laodicea, uh, but it could be the letter to Laodicea, which is how it's usually translated. And so just like he sent a letter to the church in Colossae, he sent a letter to the church in Laodicea. And there's debate about what that letter is. Some say that the letter to the church in Laodicea is what we now know as Ephesians. The more popular view is it's a letter that we lost, that nobody has seen for however many thousands of years. Ultimately, it doesn't necessarily matter, but that's one of those things that we read that and we say, wait a minute, what's this letter to the Laodiceans? And some believe it's Ephesians. A majority of scholars, or 
at least the majority of the ones that I've read, believe that it's a lost letter. And there are a few times that if you're reading through Paul, you hear him reference a previous letter that he sent to that congregation. It's done in Corinthians, and there's speculation of whether one of those books is two letters combined or not. Um, and so that's just something to be aware of. And the reason that that matters is because when people start arguing the integrity of Scripture, they point to these things and say these things remove the integrity from Scripture. Well, how do you know that you have all the books that you're supposed to have? Maybe there was a book that God intended to be in the canon, which is the official Scripture. That's the, this is called the canon. When they said these are the books that belong and these are the books that don't, and that was done, to be part of this would be to be part of the canon and be canonized, and then the other ones were left out. And generally the argument is not whether or not there were books missing, it was do these books belong? And so what we know with confidence for the most part, minus a few exceptions of people that didn't like things, through the past 2,000 years, the church has agreed collectively that these books are part of the inspired word of God. There may be other letters that are missing and other letters that aren't here, but it is believed almost unanimously that these books were inspired by God and they belong in Scripture. And as Paul says, all of this from Genesis to Revelation is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and instructing for all godliness. So that being said, let's turn to this list of friends. The first one we see or we're going to talk about is Tychicus. And I've put on here every time I mention one of these friends some other references where you can find more information about them. Some of them it's just a mention in passing kind of like here. But if you really want to look more into these friends, this is where you can do that. Uh, there are three words or three uh, phrases that Paul uses to describe Tychicus. One is beloved brother, then faithful minister, and fellow servant. It's possible, let me back up for that in a minute. I'll give you a second to write those down. Okay. The next friend is Onesimus. Tychicus and Onesimus are the two Christians that are being sent with this letter to the church. If you want to read more about Onesimus, look at the book of Philemon, or the chapter of Philemon. Onesimus is also called a faithful and beloved brother, but if you remember, Philemon is a letter written to a man in Colossae named Philemon. And Philemon had a slave who ran away whose name was Onesimus. That's the Onesimus that we're reading about here. Onesimus came from Colossae, which is why Paul says, who is one of you? And so some believe that it may have been necessary for Paul to mention these characteristics of Tychicus, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant, because he was escorting back to Colossae somebody with a sketchy 
reputation and some suspicious activity in his life that the congregation may have been a little suspicious of. So Paul wants to set out from the beginning that both of these people are part of them. Onesimus is no longer just a fellow Colossian who is a runaway slave. He is a brother in Christ. And so these two take the letter back to Colossae for Paul. Then there's Aristarchus, and you can read about him in Acts 19.29 and chapter 20, verse 4. A lot of these we're just going to touch on really quickly because we could spend all day talking about them, but that's not necessarily the point. The next one would be Mark, and there are several places you can read about Mark. What's interesting about Mark, Paul mentions that he's the cousin of Barnabas. If you remember, on one of Paul's missionary journeys, he was going with Barnabas, and Mark went with them, and somewhere along the way, Mark got cold feet and abandoned them. And so then there was another missionary journey, and Paul and Barnabas were trying to leave together, and Mark wanted to come along, and Paul and Barnabas split ways because Paul said, he's not coming. He's done this to us once. He's abandoned us. I'm done with him. We don't have time to be playing around with people that aren't committed to the cause. And so Barnabas, being the son of encouragement, says, I'm not giving up on him. And him and Paul go different directions. And so it's really interesting when you know the background of Mark to know that Paul split ways with one of his strongest missionary ministry partners over this guy because he said, I'm not dealing with him. We don't have time for people that aren't completely committed to the cause. And now all of a sudden, apparently, on that journey with Barnabas and through other activities, Mark has proved himself to be a faithful brother. And so almost all the other references you read about him are with a positive light and how helpful he has been to Paul. He's a reminder that those one-time decisions don't dictate the rest of our lives for us. And then Luke is mentioned, and Luke he calls the beloved physician. Luke is the one that most believe wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And so if you want to read about Luke, every time you see the word we in the book of Acts, it's assumed that Luke was there when that was going on. We left here and went to there, and then we did this. And then we come to Demas. I'm trying to remember what Paul says here. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Sounds pretty good. Church in Colossae was greeted by this guy who was a fellow minister with Paul. His name was Demas. The problem is, there's only one other reference to Demas that I can remember, and it's in 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. See, Demas and Mark are almost these two exact opposite stories. They're kind of like Peter and Judas. They both made this decision at some point in time that what they were doing wasn't what they wanted to do. Uh, Peter and Judas both betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And most of us know that when a friend says they don't know you, it's like we've been betrayed. Betrayed. 
Judas decides to go hang himself. Peter repents. Mark makes things right, recommits to what he's doing, realizes that he needs to just stick it out. Demas decides that the world is more important. And we can think of many people like both of these, people who have been in, uh, part of the faith and walked away and came back, and then those who were really driven as part of the faith and then decided that, you know what, this really just isn't worth it. Because the things of the world, money and fame and possessions and all of those things just have a more of an appeal than dying to yourself daily and living a life of humility where you're more concerned with honoring God and allowing people to rip you off than getting what you deserve. And then the names of Jesus, who's also known as Justice, Nympha, and Archippus, who, this is it. We don't really know anything about him. The only other thing would be that Archippus has given some extra instruction in uh, the last, there, the last section in verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now I have to say that when I read this, when I read verse 17, that sounded like an encouragement thing. And maybe that's because I know that ministry can be discouraging. And Paul's saying to the church, hey, make sure that you're lifting up and encouraging Archippus as he tries to fulfill his ministry. Encourage him. Make sure that he sees it through to the end. And so that was the natural way that I read that. And then one person said that he was chided for lacking in zeal. I don't see it. And maybe that's what Paul was doing, but I tend to believe that there's a particular ministry within the congregation that Archippus has, and Paul is encouraging the church to encourage this minister among them. Encourage him, strengthen him, remind him when he's ready to give up like Mark did, to be faithful to the ministry which he has been called. Maybe it's because I've seen so many people enter ministry and drop out because it just gets difficult that I see this as encouragement. It, it, I think it's somewhere around 80%, if I remember correctly, the dropout rate of people that decide they're going into vocational ministry and then they get burned by a church or two and they give up because it's just not worth it. I think Paul's saying to them, encourage him, make sure that he is encouraged. If you noticed, we skipped Epaphras. Epaphras is found in Acts 20 and also in Colossians 1. He is the one that's given Paul this report of the church in Colossae. He has made known to us your faith and your love for all of the saints. It's clear from what Paul says, both about himself and Timothy, and what he says about Epaphras, that Paul regards prayer as more than just a pious ancillary activity to preaching and teaching, but he believes that prayer is part of the work itself. Notice what he says about Epaphras in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers 
that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. See, and he brings it back to the fact that holiness is of utmost importance. If you remember, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul prays for that. In chapter 2, he says that he prays for that, for their maturity, and that that is what he is toiling for, struggling with all of the energy that God gives him, that, that he may present them holy and mature when Christ returns. And he says that Epaphras struggles, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. When was the last time that we struggled for somebody in prayer? We mention prayer requests, and we fill out prayer requests, and we ask people to pray, but when was the last time that you struggled for somebody in prayer? I say that to say that what I read, when I read this section, this seemingly insignificant list of friends, is that Jesus-centered friends labor for each other in prayer. Jesus-centered friends struggle in prayer for each other. They don't just fill out a slip and pass it to the front and ask somebody else to pray. They labor in prayer. It is a work that wears them out because they just there is so much wrapped up in it. Did you notice why he was praying, though? He wasn't praying that they would be safe. He wasn't praying that they would be happy and all of their wildest dreams would be fulfilled. He struggles on your behalf in his prayers in order that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so it's interesting to me the way prayer weaves its way through this book, through this letter. In chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, Paul gives us his prayer for the church. He says, since we've heard of your faith, we have not stopped, to pray, stopped praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, continuing to grow in understanding, strengthened, by his power for all endurance and patience with joy. That is the way Paul prays for them. But then notice what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 3. We looked at it last week. At the same time, pray for us who are ministering for you, ministering for God. And then in verse 12, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Jesus-centered friends labor in prayer for each other. Paul shows that he's done it. Paul requests it for himself, and then he says Epaphras has been doing it for him. So how does that connect with you and your friends? This was something that I saw several weeks ago as I was preparing this, and I, I think it's too good not to share. He said, N.T. Wright writes that God intends Christian behavior, what we read in chapter 3, put to death the sins of the, or the characteristics of the sinful nature and put on, clothe yourselves with the character of Christ. 
God intends Christian behavior to be reinforced and upheld by the friendship, company, teaching, counseling, and loving criticism of other Christians. Not to appreciate this, to fail to appreciate this is to lapse into that arrogant independence of one's fellow human beings worse one's fellow Christians, which is a sign not of the new life, but of the old. See, what Paul is saying, what N.T. Wright is saying that Paul is getting at is that God intends our Christian relationships with each other to enforce, reinforce, not enforce, but reinforce, and to undergird and to strengthen living with Christian character. And for us to not appreciate those relationships, to not appreciate when someone comes up to us and says, hey, maybe you shouldn't say that or think that or do that. To not appreciate that is to fall back into that arrogant independence, I don't need you, I don't need the church to be a Christian attitude. And it's honestly, it's just a sign that we're still part of that old life. Because we're here to strengthen each other. Which is what we see when we look through this list of friends. We see some successes and we see some failures. We see some encouragement or instruction to encourage other friends. Your friends should be helping you be faithful to Colossians 3, 1 through 4, 6. When you look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, 6, those things are what your friends should be encouraging you and helping you do, not distracting you from doing. Your Christian friends, that is. Because obviously we have different expectations for friends that aren't Christians and don't have the same priorities. We need a stronger focus on Christ and our Christian friendships. We need a stronger focus on Christ-centeredness in our friendships and our relationships with each other. Often I hear the statement that what kids today need is a parent, not a friend. Right? We ever hear that? They don't need you to be their friend. They need you to be their parent. I think that's true. I think we see a lot of people growing up that have had too many friends for parents instead of parents for parents. But the problem is, I think that often gets translated into the church. For example, they need the youth minister to be an authority figure, not a friend. That may be one of the biggest piles of baloney I've ever heard. Because the most influential people in my life who have helped shape me into the image of Christ were those Christian people who had some authority in my life, but they were my friends. And they had authority in my life because they were my friends. I have grown more into the image of Christ through Christian friendships than Christian authoritative figures. I don't think that's an accurate translation into ministry. I don't think that's what we see with Paul. Paul says he's been laboring for them. Paul asks them to pray for him and to encourage the ministers among them. And he says that the the ministers among them have been struggling for prayer, in prayer for them. 
There's no hierarchy there. They're all co-laborers. Part of the problem with that understanding is that we forget that we are all ministers. If you call yourself a Christian, guess what? You have the obligation on your life to go into the world proclaiming the name of Christ, making disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't say, this is the commission for ministers, and everybody else is off the hook. He said, as my people, this is what you are to do. And Peter reinforces that later, saying we are part of the priesthood of all believers. All believers have this ministry that they are called to. We aren't called to show up and drop money in an offering plate and be a number on an attendance roll. We are called to be ministers to the lost and ministers to each other. That's why I think that that's a wrong connection Because the only authority in the church is Christ. He is the head of the church. And we are the body. All fulfilling different roles. Jesus-centered friends labor in prayer for each other. We are called to encourage each other like Archippus. We are called to prevent apostasy like Demas. And we are called to encourage and pray for people to pursue holiness like Epaphras. And as I look at those, then I think of how we are called as the church to be encouraging each other and laboring in prayer, preventing apostasy. Pursuing holiness. I can't help but think if we were laboring in prayer for our friends, that that wouldn't have a really big impact on the issues the communities around us are struggling with right now. Both of the communities that our church reaches are the two biggest communities, because we reach more than just two, but the, the two most central communities that we reach in the last six months have had young men die through tragic accidents. And I can't help but think about the difference it would make if the church of Christ in this community, in these communities, were laboring in prayer for each other. Because I imagine that there are some people that like Demas are like, you know what? With stuff like this going on, why should I keep wasting my time on a God that lets something like this happen? Maybe the chief end of man is to eat, drink, and be merry. Because in the end, we all die. And we may as well make the most of it while we're here. And we are called to pray for each other so that we don't do that. And maybe if we were laboring in prayer for each other so that we could encourage each other, we might notice those times where we need to say, you know what? Let's talk. Let's get coffee. 
and listen to them as they pour out their struggles and we can encourage them to remain faithful through the midst of what they're going through. And there's no question that we live in a culture that is struggling to elevate. It's not even a struggle. We've given up. Our culture has put happiness as supreme. We, are, we belong to a culture where the church as a whole is struggling. And some of those churches have given up and put happiness over holiness. We need to be laboring in prayer that the church would realize that holiness is of supreme importance for us. We are not called to be happy as God is happy. We are called to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Jesus didn't die so that we could be happy. Jesus died so that we could be holy. And we are called to labor in prayer so that we can encourage each other and we can pursue holiness and we can prevent people from walking away. And that is when the church makes a difference. The church doesn't make a difference when it looks identical to the world around it. The church makes a difference when it grieves differently because it knows that we have a hope in Christ. The church makes a difference when it reaches out and loves people who are suffering. And it cries with those who are crying. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And that you promise that it never returns without fruitfulness. I pray that your word would take root in our hearts, that we would understand even these passages that we just see a list of names and we want to skip over them because we don't know how to pronounce half of them and the others seem unimportant and why does it really matter anyway? I pray that you would help that those words and those names mean something to us. May we learn from them. I pray that we would labor in prayer for each other. That we wouldn't just see it as something that we do once in a while if we happen to think about it, but it would become something that we just strive to do. That we would work at it as hard as we work at anything else. As we pray for those who suffer and those who are enduring incredible, unfathomable loss. As we watch our culture and many, many of the congregations and denominations and a big portion of your body in our culture making decisions to elevate happiness over holiness, may we be burdened by that. May we labor in prayer that your people who call themselves by your name would keep your name holy and not profane it by living in ways that dishonor you. I pray that as we 
we go through life and we suffer things that seem unimaginable and we deal with struggles and depression and frustrations and discouragement that we wouldn't give up, that we would keep our eyes on Christ. that we would have the faithfulness of Job in the midst of everything that he faced to know that even when we don't understand, you love us. We may not know why. You let things happen. But we know that you love us. May we find hope in that love. May we reflect that love so that others can find hope in that love as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.